0: This morning I want to start off by having you think about what does false hope look like? So we can pull up that first slide on the big screen. What does false hope look like? And I want to start off by pinning you a picture on May 7th, 1915, about almost 106 years ago, uh, seven years ago, sorry, my math is a little bit off. The British ocean liner, the RMS Lusitania was struck by a torpedo from a German submarine. To minimize the panic on the ship, Captain William Thomas Turner pretended like he received a report from the engine room, even though clearly he did not, and uh, instructed a concerned woman on the bridge, just stay right where you are. The ship's all right. And so the word began to spread from her to uh, various other passengers. The captain says the boat is not going to sink. And so a second-class passenger, Henry Needham, records when he heard those words, the remark was greeted with cheers from passengers, many who were trying to get on lifeboats and then turned back in apparent contentment. As a result of 1,959 passengers aboard the Lusitania, 1,313 died as it sank all because of false hope. And I want to wonder out loud for you this morning where you are placing your hope in your life. And I wonder even if you call yourself a Christian, if you might be building your life on false hope. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're in this series called Clear, where we're learning in a world of confusion, and conflict, to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And that the Apostle Paul, he writes to this cool, hip, urban church in the city of Corinth, that instead of being blinded by the values of this world, to learn to see clearly through your identity in Christ, that as you are loved and forgiven and transformed through the cross, that Jesus guides us and grows us in holiness and unity together that is distinct from the world. And then he shows us, in this letter, how to apply it to various areas of life, from sin and conflicts and relationships and controversies and ministry. And today, Paul moves from addressing the disordered practices of their church to the disordered beliefs that they have about the resurrection to challenge them if they really understand where they're placing their hope in life so 1 corinthians chapter 15 verse 1 now i would remind you brothers of the gospel i preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word i preached to you unless you believed in vain for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared uh, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, And so you believed. In verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds this fractured church why they're gathering, what what is of most importance, what is unifying them, to hold fast to the gospel about Jesus upon which all of our hope for being saved from sin and suffering and separation from the love and life of God for eternity. That if that's not real, then all this faith stuff is pointless. Pointless. And so he rolls into how do we know that Christianity isn't just a delusion of religious minds? Well, many of you already know this story, but over 300 direct prophecies occur in scriptures about this coming Messiah, a savior, king, that are all fulfilled completely in Jesus. And in verses 3 and 4, what we find is that a first and most importantly of which from these fulfilled scriptures is that Jesus dies for our sin is buried to confirm that he's dead and then raised on the third day from the dead, all in accordance with Scripture. Now, you can read from hundreds of years before Jesus, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, talking about resurrection. Psalm 22, a lot of the things that we hear about in Jesus' death, even like the dividing of his clothes, etc., all in Psalm 22. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, all fulfilled Scripture about being raised on the third day from the dead. (laughs) <laughs> and Jesus himself repeatedly de- declared, I will die, and three days later will rise. In Matthew 16, verse 21. Over and over. Remarkably accurate, specific, historical testimony of fulfilled scriptures. So there's the testimony of fulfilled scriptures, but there's also the testimony of all these eyewitnesses. We see again and again it says, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. In verse 5 and 6, he appeared in his glorified flesh, to Peter and the 12 disciples. Okay, but maybe these 12, you know, they're, they're kind of a biased audience, right? Maybe it's just a myth that they fabricated because they're biased followers of Jesus trying to create their own personal religion and personal agenda and cult uh, whereby they can profit from that. Except we know that through history, none of them received any power any influence, any riches. They didn't gain anything. Instead, they all faced beatings and hatred and murder, and yet they still testified about the risen Christ, even as some of them were dying. So it can't be for gain. And then Jesus continued appearing for 40 more days after his resurrection to crowds upwards of 500 people. Many of them whom the Corinthians could personally interrogate if they wanted to because they were still alive at the time of Paul writing this letter. Alan, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Yeah, man, I was there. I saw him. And then I want you to imagine if your big brother claimed to be the son of God and Savior, you'd think he's out of his mind. And the same thing happened to Jesus' half-brother, James, who grew up with Jesus and scriptures tells us he started out not believing his brother. John chapter 7, verse 5. None of his brothers believed in him. This, our older brother is walking around telling people he's the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. It's weird. But then in verse 7, he himself saw the risen Lord. Started worshiping Jesus as God. Pastoring a church for Jesus. As did all these other apostles that God sent and empowered to establish his church. All these apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected king. And in verse 8 and 9, finally, Jesus also appeared to Paul. And he described himself as one untimely born. That all the other apostles encountered the risen Christ during his resurrection, during that period. That Paul was late to the party. He's the only one of the apostles who only encountered the risen Christ after Jesus had already returned to the Father in heaven. And so he considers himself the least worthy apostle Because you may remember his history in in the book of Acts, he believed that Christians were worshiping a false god. And so he dedicated his life to eradicating Christianity, but then he met Jesus on a road to Damascus and went from murdering Christians to pastoring them. And so in verses 10 through 11, despite all the things that he had done, his persecutions and his past, God showed Paul undeserving forgiveness and acceptance and kindness and grace and transformed him and all these other apostles from unlikely witnesses into bold preachers of good news that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose as our savior. All the way down, preaching that all the way down to the Corinthian church and to us today so that we might believe and receive Jesus, his life, his salvation forever. And so I want to challenge you, just like Paul's challenging the Corinthian church. You know, the life and death of Jesus, easy to believe. Incontrovertible evidence, historical fact attested to by non-Christian, Greek, and Roman, and Jewish historians of Jesus' day. that you can still look up today. But I want you to also have confidence, not only in his life and death, but also in the resurrection of Christ because of the testimony of fulfilled scriptures and the unlikely eyewitness accounts of friends, family, doubters, enemies. This is the central hinge point from which all of Christianity revolves. Come on, pastor. This is what you're going to do on Mother's Day. <laughs> so what? what is Why does this matter to us? Look at verse 12. For if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Man, Paul is going into some dark places this morning. So here we go in verse 12. What's happening? Here's the problem. Some of these Corinthians who say they are Christians are starting to murmur to each other, you know what, I don't think that there is any real physical resurrection of the dead. You see, they were adopting the prevalent worldview of uh, of Greek philosophy in their day and age, that your physical body somehow is corrupt and unimportant, but your soul will live on unshackled and kind of just sheds the body like an old snakeskin that we don't need. There is no resurrection. And in 13 and 14, Paul says, well, here's what you lose. If there is no resurrection of the dead, that means that not even Jesus, Jesus never rose too, because you can't just have an exception if the rule is nobody rose from the dead. And that means that everything we preach, everything we place our hope in is pointless. Because if Jesus isn't risen, then we lose everything of real and lasting value. And here's how he demonstrates that. Verse 15 and 16, if the dead aren't raised, then there's no church. Because if Paul and the apostles are liars about God raising Jesus from the dead, then don't listen to any of our teaching. It's all untrustworthy. It's all myth. It's all folly. It's a waste of your time and energy to come to church because everything in the New Testament is an explanation about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. Like, if Jesus is raised from the dead, how does that affect our decisions and our directions, how we deal with our family and our future and our fulfillment because Jesus is alive, then we don't listen to a crew of con men. Verse 17, if Jesus is not risen, then there is no forgiveness of sin. You see, the wages of sin is what? Death. Because we're turning away from God, who is the source of what? Life. You can't walk away from the source of life and enjoy all those good benefits from him. So if Jesus is just bones in the ground, that means he didn't die to take away our sins. That means he doesn't rise to overcome the repercussions of sin and death and separation. Then all of us are just sinners, stuck in our sin, enslaved by death, disconnected from God. Verse 18, if Jesus is not risen, then there's no future. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, those who have died after placing their faith in their future, in Jesus' resurrection, that someday I will rise too with them. They're truly done. They're truly gone. They're just ashes and dust. And not sound overly nihilistic, but they're not in a better place now. Being in a hole in the ground is not better. If there's nothing more than this life, That means there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no help, there's no hope for you. Verse 19, if Jesus is not risen, Christianity is just another pitiful religion that only provides temporary hope for this life. And if all you have is 10 tips, 10 tricks for more success, more money, more happiness, a better health, better relationships, a better you, And then you tack on some vague spiritual references and maybe a Bible verse. That's just moralism for today, not a gospel for forever. And so even if this is the Corinthians thinking that my religion, well, it works works for me now, right? Even if your religion works a little bit now, if it's not forever, then it doesn't really work because it's not enough to subjectively just make you feel better for today objectively will it get me through the grave to the other side of eternity and if jesus is dead the answer is no if jesus didn't pass through life uh, through death to life then that means none of us will and we are pitiful fools filled with false hope so question for you you say most of you that you're a christian Are you building your hope and your life and even your spiritual life on something that lasts in the resurrection of Christ or something else? And here's what I mean. Things like building your life, your hope in your money or marriage or moralism. I say I'm a Christian, but if God will bless my financial life, then I trust in him. And if things tank in my my finances, then I'm, I'm angry with him building my hope in my life. Or if God gives me a a marriage partner and I have a happy marriage in life and I devote all of my attention and devotion into my wife or my husband and building a family together, what are you really building your hope on? And Paul says, why does that matter? If Jesus is still dead, what do we lose? Everything that matters. Everything that lasts. And so what do we gain if the resurrection is true that Jesus is alive? Verse 20. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came uh, for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order Christ the first fruits then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that uh, he, God the Father, is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him, Jesus. When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, his Father God, who put all things in subjection under him, Jesus, that God may be all in all. I'm adding a few words that you're clarifying because I know those pronouns are confusing. So in verse 20, the fact is Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruit, as the best fruit. What that means is that he is the guarantee for all the people who have fallen asleep. I love how the Bible describes Christians who have died. It's not that you're permanently gone. You're just taking a nap. Your body is at rest for a while while your soul is in perfect joy and in the presence of Jesus till those are reunited and renewed in your eternal and glorified state at the resurrection of the dead. And in verse 21 and 22, as death from sin and rebellion were sown into all of humanity through one man, Adam, so also redemption and the resurrection to life comes to us through one man, Jesus, who lived sinlessly, who died sacrificially, who rose victoriously. That through Adam we sin by nature and by choice, but through Jesus we're forgiven and transformed to experience a new life, a holy life, eternal life. And so verse 23 paints a picture of this road map ahead of us, that Jesus is the first fruit. What that means is that he went first. He is the predecessor and the promise of resurrection for all who believe and belong to him by faith and follow him, including into resurrection and life forever. In verse 24 and 25, then comes the end of history when Jesus returns in glory and everything gets straightened out. He's quoting and fulfilling Psalm Chapter 110, when God the Father will give the Son authority to rule and reign and defeat every cartel, every corrupt government, every oppressive authority, and subjugate all of them under his feet. Verse 26 through 28, then the last enemy that Jesus will destroy is death itself. Then his rule will be complete, and he actually returns his reign, the reigns back to the Father forever. But what I want you to get from that is The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I don't know what you've been told. Death is not your friend. And I know sometimes we have family members, or you yourself, are suffering immensely in life. And death is not a release. And what I mean by that is, in the Bible, it tells us that death was not meant to be. It is a curse. It is a consequence. It is torment forever from being separated apart from Jesus, his life, his love, his joy, and his peace. And so in his resurrection, it is promising a time is coming when death does not rule over you. Jesus does. Because death is defeated and no more. So if Jesus died and didn't rise, what do we lose? Everything. But since Jesus did die and rise again, what do we gain? First, resurrection. That death is not the end of the story. But also wanting you to understand from this passage that eternal life is more than just a, a quantity of existence. It is a quality of fulfillment. That if Jesus is risen, then we gain life in his lasting kingdom with this good king forever. That we live in a world now that is cursed, broken, fallen because of sin. If you've ever Complain about something in life, if you've ever been disappointed or frustrated, if you've ever shed tears over hurts or been outraged by injustice or politics, then you agree that life on this earth is not the way it's supposed to be. And the good news is that with the resurrection of Jesus, another kingdom is coming. One that's not like the temporary and petty kingdoms of this earth, ruled by a good king who's loving and just and sacrificial and good. And in his kingdom, Revelation chapter 21, verse four says, there's no more sin or death or mourning or weeping. And so once again, I wanna look at that question. What are you placing your hopes in, in this life? What are you building your hope and your life upon? Because it doesn't matter if you finish your degree or get married, or have kids, or make money, or pursue your dreams. All good things, all fine things, but in the end, there will always still be something missing. Eternity with God in his kingdom, no matter how much of this life seems to work out, it's still not going to be what you expected, what you anticipated, what you really long for, because it's still not his kingdom, and we've yet to see the king. And Paul says, if Jesus did rise, then he's our king, and he's coming again to fully and finally establish his kingdom here on earth. That through Jesus' resurrection, there's hope in this life. There's the promise of eternal life. And in between, everything in between that truly matters to the human soul. Pastor, we're humoring you by sitting quietly, but uh, you know, how does this actually, how does the Corinthians' doubts about resurrection actually apply to me in my life? Let's look at the last section of passage, verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead aren't raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? And Paul's life is rough. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is ripe, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. (laughs) <laughs> this is a weird passage Paul says a lot of things, kind of strings together a bunch of sayings that were popular in their culture as well, so let's break into this a little bit, Paul starts off, is wrapping up his talk with them with a series of rhetorical questions three of them, verse 29 if there's no resurrection for those who have been baptized and they already died then why are we bothering following their examples, getting baptized on their, by their example too because baptism is a symbol of our body rising again through the resurrection of Christ. Don't be baptized on their behalf. Don't follow that example. Verse 30, if there's no resurrection, why do we endure this constant persecution? You see, back then, for a Jewish person or maybe even a Gentile person to uh, come and follow Jesus to disown their their former life and their former faith, back then you would be disowned by your family. You would be ostracized by your community. You'd be oppressed financially. You might be abused, even fatally. Why bother enduring all this persecution? Verse 31 and 32, Paul makes it personal. Why is Paul himself sacrificing and suffering for the sake of the Corinthians' faith if Jesus is not risen and the dead aren't raised with him? And the answer to all three of these questions, why bother if there's no resurrection? You shouldn't. There is no good reason. And Paul says, so he's quoting some some stuff from their Greek-centered society. If there's no resurrection... Forget about eating healthy, just eat whatever you want. Get drunk, get naked, spend money on whatever you want, use whoever you want, because tomorrow we die and there is nothing afterward. If Jesus is dead and not risen, there is no heaven or hell. There is no judge waiting for you, there is no eternity, there is no consequences, so what are you doing? Just enjoy this life, do whatever you want. And you see, that's the Corinthians' real problem in this passage, how they're living. Because in verse 33, it says that they're listening to the wrong crowd. Don't be deceived by bad company and bad theology. Anyone who says to you that Jesus is, isn't really resurrected, it's just, this, it's just symbolic, not salvation. It's a metaphor to guide us to be more enlightened, more moral, better human beings. And you need to hear, God did not send his son to make bad people good, but to make sinful people forgiven, to make dead people alive in the resurrection of Christ. And so verse 34, as a result of buying into these bad influences, these Corinthians, they're like people who are eating and drinking and living as if uh, tomorrow they'll die but will not rise afterwards. And Paul says, you need to wake up from your drunken stupor. You need to come to your senses from your ignorance and your indulgence. You see, they are ignorant about God and his resurrection and how that impacts our lives. And so they end up indulging themselves in their sins. It's we intellectually believe this thing or we, we're kind of heard about this thing, but it doesn't really affect our lives. We don't really trust and follow it. So we're going to live the way we want. wonder how many Christians that describes today. And so it's not an intellectual objection to the resurrection of Jesus. It's a hardness of heart. Some of the Corinthians, they're questioning the resurrection, not denying it, they're questioning it because what are they doing? It says in verse 34, they're sinning. At the end of the day, they're left with this decision. If I believe in the resurrection, then I'm gonna to have to repent of sin and trust and follow and obey Jesus. But if I convince myself there is no resurrection, then what do I get to do? I don't have to stop sinning because nothing happens to me after I die. We're just all worm food. There's nothing more. There's nothing good. There's nothing bad that's going to happen to me. And it's very common in our postmodern condition, the way that our society thinks today. We're obsessed with the present. Like how does our spirituality, how does our faith affect the present? Which is good things. I think one of the the things I'm most pleased with about the, the direction of the church over the last 10 years, not just our church, the church capital C, is that there is a openness to seeing how does God's justice apply to our world today? How can we invite the kingdom of God for heaven to come to earth and be manifest in the work of followers of Jesus? But unfortunately, the the flip side of that is that our postmodern condition, we get so obsessed with the present that we're ignorant about the future, that we can't just have a short-term trajectory. We need a biblical mindset that eternity is a really long time as either God's friend, or as God's enemy. In God's kingdom, or separated from it. This is what awaits us all. So Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, the real problem is not that you're super smart. It's not that the evidence is not there, because it is, that Jesus lived and died and rose, that there are eyewitnesses, Christian and not Christian, who all testify to these historical, incontrovertible, objective truths. The problem is that some of us look at truths and say, but I don't believe them. But what we really mean is, I don't like them. That people reject the truth of the resurrection of Christ, not because we cannot believe, but because we refuse to receive its implications for our lives. Do you understand what I mean? We're not that much different than the Corinthians. So the question you can ask yourself is Am I being deceived? Are you deceived? because there's a vast difference between not having sufficient information and evidence and not having a willing heart to receive those truths. For some, it's like an arrow bouncing off of your heart because your heart is so hard as stone. I don't believe these things. I don't believe in heaven or hell or eternity or the resurrection of Christ, why? Because I like living for myself. I like having sex with my girlfriend or boyfriend outside the covenant bond of marriage. I like, no, I don't want to forgive my enemies. I want to dox them and cancel them because I'm self-righteous. I want to stay bitter, and I want to get revenge. I don't want to stop getting drunk or getting high. I want to be my own God. I want to do what I want. I want to go where I please, and I don't want to pay any price for it. The Corinthians' problem is the same as ours. It's not that we cannot believe. It's just that we don't want to receive those the implications of resurrection for our lives. That if Jesus rose from the dead, you and I, we have someone to live for, and it also changes the the trajectory of our lives and the way we go. And so we need to be clear about the hope that we have in the resurrection of Christ. And I want to challenge you. Jesus did not die to make your life in the Bay Area a paradise. He died so that we would stop trying to make this life your heaven on earth because we have something outrageously better that lasts forever. And if you're, even as a Christian, all you're doing is living for your own comfort, entertainment, escapes, yourself, or just your little family, instead of for Jesus, and this life is your heaven, then that means this life is your heaven, and this is as good as it gets, and you are to be most pitied of all, Paul says. But if Jesus is risen and we belong to him and we live for him, then this life is as bad as it gets. This is your hell, and it only gets better from here. I love the idea of paradise, but this isn't it. And because he's alive, that means he's our God, and we worship him. He is wonderful and glorious and good. He's coming again to establish his kingdom, to fill us with joy and celebration, the kind without sin. And so I want to ask you one last time, where do you place your hope? Are you building on a false hope for your life and your future or the reality? You see, it's so easy, even for those who say they're Christians, for faith to become a spiritual life hack with layers of sin underneath and a little Jesus sprinkled on top. Instead of revolving our existence and our decisions and our directions around the centrality and reality that Jesus is risen and resurrected Lord. So I want to challenge you to let your heart be changed and to let Jesus help you to live different today. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the power of your word. Today was not a very fancy message, not even a very great message, but the content The word that we're listening to, your word, is powerful. And so I thank you, God, for reminding me once again that we can, we must receive the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus. That it's not just stale dead theology from 2,000 years ago, that there's incredible implications for how we see our lives, how we live our lives. God, help us not to miss out. We don't wanna settle for a religion that only affects us in the short term. Help us to set our eyes on the prize of Jesus. Help our eyes to be focused on him so that what we build our life on isn't built on the false hope of moralism or spirituality or uh, being good people or thinking that we're receiving grace, but living however we want with no impact on us, no difference from us and the world. Resurrection changes everything. Be the resurrected Lord of our lives today. Move us in whatever direction we need to go this morning. May we know and experience our resurrected Lord more and more, starting today. By the power of his name we pray.